Thank you for listening to this podcast from Renew San Diego, a church for the good of all our neighbors in North Park, San Diego. If you're ever in the area on Sunday mornings, we'd love to welcome you. More information at renewsandiego.org. Share with a friend. See you soon. Today's scripture reading is Matthew chapter 5, verses 1 through 12. When Jesus saw the crowds, he went up the mountain, and after he sat down, his disciples came to him. To them he began to speak and taught them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. Blessed are the merciful, for they will receive mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called children of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when people revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven. For in the same way, they persecuted the prophets who were before you. And the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Please take a moment for silent reflection. Our centering prayer is connected to our breath and it's prayed silently. And so on the inhale, we pray, gracious God. On the exhale, we pray, lead us by your spirit. So let's take a few moments to pray together. Gracious God, send out your spirit to renew the face of the earth. In your strength, speak in our weakness. In your beauty, renew the mess that we've made of this world in our lives. In your loving, steadfast, self-giving presence, we pray that you'd fill us with your spirit and teach us in a way that our lives would be transformed and this world would be renewed. We pray these things for our good and for your glory. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. We're continuing through our series on the Beatitudes. And to remind you, the Beatitudes, this, the, each of these in the stanza on this great sermon that Jesus gave on this mountain and got recorded in the Gospel of Matthew chapter 5, each of these parts of the beginning of that sermon, which is often considered the greatest compendium of Jesus' direct teaching to his followers. And we're going straight to the source. And in beautiful poetic fashion, each line begins with blessed are. Blessed are you when you mourn. You'll be comforted. 
today, blessed are the merciful, for they will be shown mercy. And the interesting thing is that Greek word in which the original New Testament was written, it was already a word that the Greeks knew. And in fact, they attributed it to what it would be like to live like life like the gods. That word blessed is makarios. It means heavenly or godlike or lucky or wonderful are you when you are merciful for you will be shown mercy. Merciful is not a virtue that we aspire to these days. Have you ever noticed that? It's a word that often gets overlooked unless we realize we've done wrong and then we want mercy. Mercy is not the currency of political power unless the particular politician has been found out doing wrong. Then they want mercy. Years ago, I went to South Sudan to visit this orphanage, school, and hospital. Our church in San Francisco had helped build this three-wing hospital in South Sudan. When other people were running away from the war in South Sudan, this group of people ran into it and developed really in interesting and amazing healthcare system. Next month, if she can make it, Mama Lily, who is an amazing woman, started, who started the original school and orphanage, will be here to speak to us. So I can't wait for you to meet her. I went out there. And when I wasn't helping out in the hospital, I was coaching soccer to a bunch of tribal kids from South Sudan, which was awesome. And when I wasn't doing that, I'm a firm believer in if you're not doing anything, just find something to do if you're going to help somebody. And so I'd walk through the school, and, one, and they were short of teachers. One day, I walked in by a classroom where all the students were sitting at attention, and there was no teacher in the room. They were just waiting. And I said, hi, boys and girls. Good morning. I'm Pastor Matt. Where's your teacher? And they said, well, we don't know. I said, well, today I'll be your teacher. So I walk in and I said, well, what, what class is this? And they said, oh, it's, it's Bible study. I said, that's great. That's kind of my specialty. We're all in like, I'm so glad it wasn't astrophysics or something. And I, just, I was like, what am I going to teach these kids? What am I going to do? And the first thing I did, I just wrote three words up on the chalkboard. I wrote the words justice, mercy, and grace. Now, before I get into the definitions I gave them for that, I want some participation here. And we're going to just ask the question mercy, the word we don't use very often. When I say the word mercy, or when you hear the word merciful, what comes to mind for you? Go ahead and just share it out loud. Kindness. Kindness. Undeserved. Undeserved. Mercy. Merciful. Lord of mercy. Forgiveness. Forgiveness. Kindness, undeserved, forgiveness. We're on a good track here, I think. Let's hold those. Let's hold those. Someone right now is online going, I wish I was there. I would tell you. You could put it in the comments section. I wrote the words justice, mercy, and grace. And I said, justice is getting what you deserve. Mercy is not getting what you deserve. Undeserved. And grace is getting what you don't deserve. And the interesting claim of Christianity that we see embodied in Jesus Christ is justice, mercy, and grace all wrapped together. Now let's focus on mercy as the key that unlocks the door. One theologian, Richard Rohr, said, I am convinced that forgiveness and mercy are the key to the entire gospel, to the entire good news of God's salvation. So let's focus on mercy and ask, why do we need it? How do you get it? And what does it look like, practically speaking, when it's in action? First, why do we need it? First part is, it doesn't come naturally to us. We do not traffic in it. Recall if, if you're an 80s child or if you're just a big fan of classic movies, The Karate Kid. 
where the leader of the antagonistic dojo would encourage their students, we show no mercy. Mercy is for the weak. We think it's weak. To be mercy is to be a person of weakness. We don't value weakness. We don't even like meekness because it rhymes with weakness. Mercy is for the weak. No, thank you. We live in a meritocracy. You earn your keep. You eat what you kill. You enjoy what you achieve. And so we develop a mentality of I earned it. They didn't. I got it right. They didn't. We love the comparison game. It does something for us. The irony is, next time you find yourself judging somebody else based on comparison, here's what I find is the pattern. We judge other people when they're at their worst against ourselves when we're at our best. Very simple explanation. I've shared this before. You're driving down the freeway. The, the car on the left comes out of their lane a little bit. You look over there on their phone texting. They are an idiot. They don't care about life. They don't have their life together. They're dumb. They shouldn't even have a driver's license. A week later, you're running late for an important meeting with your boss, and you pull out your phone real quick just to say, I'll be there in five, and you realize you went a little bit over the lane. But when you did it, I had a good reason. That was my boss. It was really important. I don't want to lose my job. We compare others at their worst to ourselves at our best, and we love it. We want to make people pay when they've done wrong. I mean, let's be honest, there, there's something that feels good about holding a grudge. You get to replay the wrongdoing over and over again, and every time you were right. And we set up entire systems like this. It's, it's retribution instead of restoration. It's they did it wrong, I want to make them pay. Instead of the door of empathy, I wonder what's going on in that person's life for them to have that sort of a response. If I can't be a part of the goodness in their life, I can at least hope for it. We don't go down that path naturally is the point. You can go down that path, but it takes intentionality. Our justice system is set up as a retributive justice system, not a restorative justice system. And so I have seen over 20 years of ministry, somebody commit a crime, might be in the mid-level crime, okay? Just imagine whatever that might be. They go to jail and they get what my friend calls a PhD in being a criminal, and then they get out 10 years later, and they're a mastermind. See, we wanted to make them pay, but it turns on its head, and it comes out in all sorts of other directions. By the way, I don't have the solution for our justice system. I do know part of it is we should be involved in it. Um, so something for you to be praying about is our connection with county jail here and how we might open up some opportunities there. But we like retribution. We don't naturally gravitate toward mercy on one hand because we don't think it needs, we need it. So the gospel will always confront you. It will say there are aspects of your life of which you are out of control. You need God more than you realize. And we say, hold on, no thank you. First of all, who are you to tell me how to live my life? Who are you to be the decider of what is right and what is wrong? And so we become victim of our own pride. We become the arbiter of our own virtue. As C.S. Lewis once pointed out, we all think that everybody should decide for themselves what is right and wrong until we are wronged by that person who decided what was right and wrong. It doesn't work, but we continue on trying the same thing again and again and expecting different results. And the gospel confronts you with something like this. You ready? You are far worse off than you realize. 
people of means, people who can put on a fresh set of clothes, people who know how to show up and smile and be present, people who have resources like community around them. You are far worse. We cover things up really well, but you're far more needy than you realize. It confronts you, and at the same time, it consoles you and says, you are far more loved than you ever dared to imagine. At the same time. So the last reason we shun mercy, we avoid it, we're allergic to it, is because we say, I'm beyond being forgiven. I can't tell you how many times in the course of my calling as a pastor, I have heard somebody respond to one of the sermons here or elsewhere and say, I heard you talk about God's grace, I heard you talk about God's forgiveness. If you knew the things that I've done or the things that I think or the ways that I talk about others, you would know that that's not for me which I hear you, and I will challenge you, that's actually a form of reverse pride, believe it or not. Because what you're saying is, the things that I've done are a special kind of bad. They're so bad that the creator of the world's not powerful enough to forgive them. Now who's the powerful one? You and all the things you've done or the things you haven't done, right? And so we avoid mercy, because we think we don't need it or we think we don't deserve it. But here's the thing, without mercy, in a dog-eat-dog -dog world, even if you win, you're still acting like an animal. Without mercy, if you enter into the rat race of this fast-paced life and you win, you're still just a rat. And it dehumanizes us. And so as the author of the book we're studying in community group, Mark Scandrett, he always puts these actions together with the movements, and he says, our default drive is to look at people with judgment and contempt. And he goes back to that Canadian comedian who, like, will put people's heads in a little vice in their, in their fingers. I am squishing your head. I will crush you. I will crush you. And this is the way that we look through the world. And he says, what if we move from that? Bear with me here. It's a caricature, but it, it's a mnemonic device. It'll help you remember. He said, what if we made, like, a Valentine-style heart? and look through the world like that, both globally but really individually. And our lens was mercy. What if you looked in the mirror like that? That's a new way to freedom, to joy, to resiliency, to being able to deal with the most difficult people in your life. As one theologian wrote, a lifetime of received forgiveness allows you to become merciful, merciful, full of mercy. That's why we need it, to be truly human, truly alive, really connected. Now, how do you get it? As I said, it doesn't come naturally, which means it has to come from somewhere else. It has to come externally to you as a gift. And I would commend to you the invitation to receive. Maybe your first step is to be open to the reality that you are far more loved than you dare imagine even when you're comparing yourself to others, even when you're looking in the mirror and saying, I've really failed, even when you're looking at the future saying, it's all uncertain, I'm completely confused, in that moment, you are far more loved than you could possibly imagine. Far more mercy. It's an image of someone swimming in the ocean. You are swimming in an ocean of grace that cannot be exhausted. That's the truest thing about you. But don't take my word for it. When you start with that lens and you look back through scripture in the Old Testament and the New, it was there all the time. In Isaiah 38, verse 17, 
the prophet, speaking to God's people, says, God has thrust your sins, your wrongdoings, behind God's back. How big is God's back? How far away did God put your wrongdoings and separate them from you? Well, elsewhere, one of the great poets in the Bible wrote, as far as the east is from the west, so far has God placed your wrongdoings. How far is the east from the west? I don't know, but they'll never meet. An ocean of grace and mercy. One of the Psalms informs us, the Lord is compassionate and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in love. As a parent has compassion on their children, so the Lord has compassion on you. Let me tell you, parenting three children, and at one point being a child myself and looking at what I put my mother through especially, your children will transgress. You see this. It has never crossed my mind to abandon one of my children. It's never crossed my mind to stop loving one of my children. Even when they're kicking and screaming against me, let alone just being wayward and wandering, still I would never leave them or forsake them. And so in the words of Jesus, as you, although you live beautifully and brokenly, sometimes falter, how much more will the gracious God who created this world care for you? It's critical that you see that this is not something that I'm making up or that religion has invented. This is the character of God. At the heart of God is steadfast love that will never leave you or forsake you. You see Jesus in the temple in uh, somewhere around John chapter 8. And this woman had been caught in adultery. And the religious leaders bring her to Jesus. And they're trying to trap him. They're trying to see if he's going to uphold the justice of their law or if he's going to be gracious and merciful. That's the trap. And he says, who, they want to throw stones at her to kill her. It was a death penalty for what she had just been accused of doing. And Jesus says, whoever of you has never sinned, go ahead and throw the first stone. It's brilliant, right? Because he's not undoing justice. He's not loosening the requirement of God that we don't cheat on our spouses. He's not saying it doesn't matter and it's okay. He's saying, you all have a brokenness to your lives. Let the, let the only person who's never sinned throw the first stone. The great irony is, in that moment, you realize he's the only one authorized to throw a stone because he's never sinned. I mean, think about it. Right now, if you run for public office or whatever, they're going to scrutinize your whole life and stuff comes out. Jesus had walked around with letting people worship him as the creator of the world for at least three years. They would have found some dirt on him if they had it. They made accusations. No one could come and back them up. He's the only one that actually has the, the ability to condemn you, the authority to condemn you. And in that ability and in that authority, what does he choose to do? Neither do I condemn you. So go on a new way. Grace and mercy. Jesus on the cross, it culminates on the cross as he is being abandoned by his friends and murdered by both a collusion of the Roman Empire and the religious establishment. And his answer is not, I have a fireball for each of you and it's coming right now, which he could have. It's, Father, forgive them, for they don't even know what they're doing. How can God, we talked about justice, mercy, and grace. How can God be both just and merciful to you at the same time? To both call good, good, and bad, bad, and right, right, and wrong, wrong, and not say it's just all doesn't matter and it's all relative. 
to say, no, there actually is a direction to this world. It's going toward renewal. And when you step outside of it, you're outside of God's justice, as we talked about last week. So God is both just and merciful. And I would suggest you consider what's taking place cosmically when you see or read about Jesus going to the cross. Where on the cross, you have Jesus taking all of the wrongdoing of all of the world of all time upon himself and letting it crash like a tidal wave. Upon not just another good teacher who meant well. The world has plenty of them. Upon the very body of God himself. God taking the brokenness. That's the key, as I said at the beginning of this point, to receiving, to seeing, to believing, to trusting that you really are this beloved. Let that melt your heart. That's why Christianity is not a plan of behavior modification. I know some of you want me to give you a list of things you should do and things you shouldn't do, and if you do them, the church will give you a gold star, and if you don't do them, the church is going to talk badly about you. This will never be that kind of church. Because external behavior modification will never change your heart. But if you let your heart get changed, then it will change the way that you live. Consider this. There's a part of the prayer we'll pray later today, the Lord's Prayer. Forgive us our sins as we forgive those who sin against us. Or if you're old school, forgive us our trespasses. Back in the old land ownership days, forgive us our trespasses as those who trespass against us. People are like, San Diego is not in a land ownership phase. Have you seen the property values around? I get it. But it holds. Forgive us our sins as we forgive those who sin us. One way to look at that is, God's ability to forgive you is contingent, dependent upon your ability to forgive other people. In other words, if you don't forgive people, God can't forgive you. I would suggest that that is taking a pair of binoculars, which are supposed to go that way, and looking at them this way. And now everything looks far away and small, and comparatively, I feel really big. Because I've got all the power. If I forgive, God will forgive me. If I don't forgive, God... I'm, the, I'm actually the director of the play. And God's just an actor in the play. But he invites you to turn the binoculars around and look the right way. Which is, consider how I've forgiven you. Now you have a wealth to go and do likewise. In other words, it's not conditional. It's not dependent, the way that you're able to forgive others, the way that you're able to have compassion, the way that you're able to give undeserved love is actually an indicator of how you're receiving that love from God at any given moment. The way that you're able to forgive others, the way that you're able to live a life of mercy is not a way that you earn God's mercy. It's an indicator that you are already receiving it and it's flowing through you to other people. So see God's mercy toward you. In my calling, that's one of the hardest things that I've ever seen for us to do, is to actually believe that God loves you that much. Now, what does it look like in action? I'm going to give you a few suggestions, but we'll flesh it out more in the community group in this book that we have offered to everybody. Um, A few ideas. Let's take a look at this. First is learn to look with love 
instead of judging and condemning others. Okay? I'll give you an example. Recently, I was asked to present at this conference, and I was glad to go. I love presenting at conferences. I love bragging about you and talking about what God's doing, and I love talking. You know that. That was great. But as I, st- as I was on my way to the auditorium, I realized I was just like, like a computer program running in the background. I was just judging the whole thing. The critic's voice in my head went something like this. They're, they're kind of hypocrites. They're really showy. It's all about the big production. Ugh. I don't like showy, I don't, especially in church. I don't like the big production, especially if it's religion. But what I found was happening there was, A, I was comparing them at my idea of their worst against me at my idea of my best. But, B, it was starting to make my heart real small. And the way I was able to deactivate it was a simple prayer, God, help me to see beauty today and help me to be something beautiful today. That's just a new, that's a new waypoint. I'm, I'm going for that instead of condemnation and judgment, and I could feel my blood pressure go down. I could feel myself actually look people in the eyes and be a human being toward them. Number two has part A and part B. Part one is, part A is, practice positive speech. There's a place in the New Testament where Paul's writing, the Apostle Paul's writing to an early church, and he says, what if you took captive every thought in your mind? Instead of just letting them run wild, What if you took every thought captive and examined it? As Socrates said, the unexamined life is not worth living. What if you're running this diagnostic of what are my thoughts and are they positive or are they negative? Are they loving or are they condemning? Practice positive speech first to yourself. I'm hard on myself. I finished the day with a long list of things to do. Florence asked me the other day, how was the day? I said, I didn't get my to-do list done, all the things I had to do, but a lot of things popped up that weren't on the list in the morning, and I got some of them done. But it doesn't matter even about that. What does that tell you about me? It tells you that's, how I, that's my first grid for how was my day. Did I get everything done? What if you have compassion on yourself? So yeah, yeah, we need to get things done. They're important. But that's not an indicator of how you're de- who you are. I, we have a friend of our family. She is a, an educated, powerful vice president of her company. And in her story of how she became a Christian, she tells the story of she was in her bathroom brushing her teeth one night. And she was kind of on the verge of maybe I believe these things, maybe I don't, I'm not sure. So she was at least at the point where she could pray the prayer, God, if you really do love me. No, God, if you really are real, say something to me I would never say to myself. And she, she says, in that moment, she was overwhelmed with a voice and a thought and a feeling so, so pervasive and convincing it was as if it had actually been spoken. And the word was, I love you. And she became a little faint and needed to sit down. And she, she realized in that moment that had to come from God because she had never told herself that she loves her. What if that's the inner speak that you have? I have a friend who is kind of of the similar ilk. And the thing about it is, self-criticism can drive you to do great things. It can drive you to be really productive. It will be at the cost of your soul and your heart and eventually your health and probably your relationships, but you can accomplish a lot. And I have a friend who, every time I talk to him, I simply say, I want you to know God loves you, and so you can love yourself. And sometimes he melts into tears when I say that to him, a grown man in public. Let that melt your heart. What if that is the refrain of your life? Positive speech toward yourself. The second part is compassion toward others. 
Mark Skiandret is going to encourage us, and I therefore relay the encouragement, to a seven-day experiment. A seven-day experiment of your thoughts and your words. No negative thoughts or words toward other people. You're going to get it wrong. He talks about how when he, the first day he started it, by the third hour he had lambasted a politician at the dinner table. He had talked about someone. He's like, you're going to get it wrong. That's not the point. The point is you're going to become more aware. And you're going to start moving in a new direction. Your words and your thoughts, seven days, were only words of compassion. No gossip. And third, it's too big to unpack today, but it's here and we can work through it in our community group. Let go of resentments. Think about the word resentment. It comes from, you know, at least the combination of two words, probably three, with, if you want to add ment on the end. Resent, resent. What is sent in Spanish? Sentir, to feel. What does re mean? To do again. When you resent someone, you are just feeling again and again the angst of that original anger. You're, you're calling it up. I, my friends, we watch the Warriors games all the time. Go Warriors. And this is basketball, if you're not involved. And my friend goes, you know, they have a resentment machine at the stadium. Well, what is it? It's the instant replay. If someone runs over Steph Curry, he hurts his knee, he goes off to the locker room to get treatment, and they're going to play that injury again and again and again. He's already off on the pathway to healing. He's getting taken care of. And we're still sitting in the injury going, I hate that other player, whatever they, you know, Argh. We have a resentment machine in our mind. What if you abandon the idea of resenting people? Now, you need an alternative because you can't just, you know, nature abhors a vacuum. You have to do something else. And what do you do is you work toward forgiveness. Here's Mark's caveat on forgiveness. I wholeheartedly subscribe to all of this. We don't have time to unpack it. It's on page 79. There are a lot of misconceptions about forgiveness. Forgiving someone doesn't mean you're condoning, excusing, or forgetting the, the offending behavior. Okay? So it's not complicity. And it's not silence. The pain may stay with you for a long time. Forgiving someone doesn't mean that trust is restored. You know, if someone steals from you and they say, please forgive me, you can choose to forgive them and not give them any money or leave your money around the house anymore with them there. It doesn't mean trust is restored. You can forgive someone and still ask that they face the consequences of their actions. Here's a big one. Forgiveness is not contingent upon the other person apologizing or even admitting their wrongs. Often we say, I can't forgive them, they're not apologizing. I can't forgive them, they're not even telling me, they're not even acknowledging that they're in the wrong. And here's the good news of forgiveness as far as your side of the street is concerned. Because you can only keep your side of the street clean. You don't need their permission to forgive them. Wow. Can you imagine if you did? You would have to be a slave to that person for the rest of your life if they did not choose to apologize. No way. You can choose to forgive someone who's not even apologizing. Now, that's different than reconciliation. Reconciliation means to bring two parties who are at odds with each other back into communion. That will require their participation. That's a hope. That's a prayer. That's a pathway. But you can forgive them. And friends, this is all part of being merciful and living out of a place of deep mercy. It all comes back to the truth of who you are. As a beloved child of God, in the midst of a big and beautiful world that's also broken, that God is committing to restore. And so the mission of restoration is God's mission. The miracle is that God invites you and me to join in. Blessed are the merciful, for they will be shown mercy. 
May that be so in your life. May that be the tone of our community right here in North Park, in San Diego, and in the world. Let's pray. Gracious God, we do pray that you would convince us of your great love for us now and send us out to receive your mercy, your undeserved grace, your forgiveness, your kindness, to own our identity as beloved children of God that can never be taken away or erased or even diminished. And then send us out with that kind of humble confidence, with that kind of meek strength to be agents of your mercy in a world that so desperately needs it. Pray these things in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.